0: I've generally always got extra material that doesn't make the sermon. And so I'm going to carve out material um, to go further with. So we're going to try to focus on questions that deal with either what we've taught this morning or taught in recent weeks. And I may say, hey, we'll deal with that afterwards. Come talk to me just as an attempt to bring in some focus because we've we've gone far and broad. Um, So anyway, but I do, it is very important to me, um, very important to me that we have an opportunity for cross-examination to hold me accountable and that ultimately the goal of of preaching and teaching is is your understanding. And so if you have questions, either in your understanding or in what I've said or the rightness of what I've said, there needs to be a forum for that exchange, and that's what this is. So I will always make priority for that. But if we have a 30-second pause... I've got places to go. So, I mean, in the text, not places to go out there. Sorry. Uh, yeah, later. Um, okay. Sorry. That, that came out wrong. So with that said, the microphones are standing by. Questions on this morning and the firstborn. And Simeon has a question. Okay, um, Simeon.
1: My first question is about the seven spirits. that yes. was mentioned twice in your two, passage, two
0: different passages you read. I was just curious if you could elaborate more on those. Sure. A short answer to that, that first shows up in Isaiah, um, where the uh, root from the stump of Jesse will come, and upon him will be the seven spirits of God, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge. It goes through. It becomes clear these are attributes of the spirit, not different people. Um, so there are seven ways or exemplary qualities of the spirit. Um, there are some, I think Benny Hinn wanted to now argue that God is not a trinity, but like a nineity. Well, you've got the Father, the Son, and the seven spirits. That's not what's going on. That, without doing more study, that's as far as I can go. But it's the, the root of the stump of Jesse. If someone's got a phone and wants to look up where that is in Isaiah. I think that's Isaiah f- 6. 2.11. Oh, 11.2. There you go. Okay, great. Next. Oh, there we go. Shirena.
2: So if Jesus is the temporal firstborn from the dead, what does that make Lazarus?
0: Lazarus... Is a technically a resuscitation. He comes back mortal. He doesn't come back changed. He doesn't come back any significantly different than prior to his death. Um, Jesus comes back and he's walking through walls. Jesus. I mean, one of the places we may go if we if we don't have if we have time is First Corinthians fifteen, which makes the distinction. There there is continuity between your current body and your future body. My current body, my future body. Jesus body in the incarnation and Jesus' resurrection body, there's also massive discontinuity, dissimilarity. It is changed. Paul talks about being transformed. No one prior to Jesus that we know of, that happened. So Lazarus' spirit came back to Lazarus. Whatever decay was reversed or undone. But apart from that, he's no different than he was four days before that. Um, Jesus is radically different than he was at the crucifixion. Does that make sense? Okay, Renee, it's better to be on topic, Renee. <clears throat> sorry, can't help but give her a hard time. So
3: in the um, Second Colossians, second or two, I'm sorry, second yeah. chapter of Colossians, yes, verse nine. He's fully God and fully man. Yes, and um, I've been struggling with this a little bit since we've done the the book by Jen Wilkin, and all the attributes of God. Yes. And Philippians says that he emptied himself. Yes. And so can you just speak a little bit more to help me roll all that around? I think that it's probably my weakness is to, or as I say, thought through this more, is mm. to diminish his attributes mm. as fully God. And today you spoke that he is fully God. And I think that it's, it's easy to make him more man than God when right. he was here on earth. So,
0: right. Well, there's a lot of, and we've talked previously about this as well. There's a lot of difficulties to factor in here. Jesus never ceases to be God and retain the attributes of God, he does cease utilizing them. And the, the, the weak analogy I use is this. We happen to have bought uh, the deluxe edition of the Sienna. The guy we bought it from used just, it had bells and whistles, the JBL speakers, you know, all that stuff. So imagine you've got the deluxe edition of a car, and you're somehow able to turn off all the deluxe features, stop, so the, the power steering gets turned off, and all those other things. It still remains the deluxe edition. But you can also say, driving this car is no different than driving the normal edition, right? So Jesus does not possess functional, or does not, sorry, you gotta be careful, does not utilize, make use of omniscience functionally in the incarnation. He doesn't know who touched him. He doesn't know the day of his return. He grew in wisdom and learned. So he's not using omniscience. What other attributes he doesn't use, we can try to observe and make observations. We know he learned. So part of it, my caution would be, Stick with what the text says. And there's people have, I mean, pe- pe- people speculate in this. You talked about an article you read, and they want to make a logical conclude. Jesus emptied himself. We don't get a ton of detail what that means. He doesn't stop being God. Um, he certainly didn't empty himself of all but love, like that hymn says. Um, and yet, he remains God. The, the, the demons who encounter him react to him as though he's God. And they're terrified of him. Nature responds to him as God when he commands the storm to cease and be still. So we can speculate about how much he gave up. Certainly knowledge. He's certainly proximately local. He gets tired. So he gave up omnipotence or the use of omnipotence because he gets exhausted and falls asleep in a boat. He gets hungry. Um, So we look at all these limitations that God the Father says never... Our God never grows tired or slumbers or sleeps. Jesus does, right? So we can certainly make those points of, of, okay, apparently part of what he emptied himself means is he can get tired. He can go sleepy. But I think it's dangerous to think we can spell it out perfectly. We're we're limited by what the text says. Um, So that's... Is that good? Anyone want to add to that or...? Simeon?
1: Is it kind of like um, if if you're with like a general or something like that? They're still a man, but they can pull strings if they need them. Yeah, no. See. Because okay, like if something needs to be done, I can. I've got limited resources to do that. They have a plethora of resources to do that with. But and at the end of the day, like he's still a man. I'm still a man.
0: Well, here's here's. With, with the humanity of Christ, here's what I want to maintain. Hebrews 2 insists that he was made every, in every respect like us. So my default, when I think of how Jesus lived, unless the text points me otherwise, my default is it's like me. It's not unlike me. That's, that's where I'm defaulting. There are places where it's not like me. Jesus' temptation is different than my temptation. So what I don't want to end up is, is Jesus looks like he's a person, looks like he's growing, but really, you and I know better. Uh, Jesus is learning. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn... He's in the temple, sitting at the feet of the teachers, asking questions. He's growing in knowledge. So I, I don't want him to be like... Mic no? drop. Like Clark Kent, walking around, pretending to be weak and powerless, when really at any moment, he can snap his fingers. I tend to think, and, I, and this is not something I could, I could get dogmatic on, but I tend to think Jesus... Um, even the supernatural knowledge Jesus gets, so he sees um, Nathan below the tree, um, is the spirit giving him that insight. I mean, we have examples of that in the Old Testament where Elijah somehow sees his servant go to Naaman and say, actually, my master changed his mind, he will take payment. I mean, he gets made a leper for that. Um, we don't know how Elijah knew that, presumably the Spirit of God communicated to him. So I, I tend to think Jesus didn't take advantage of any special um, abilities that previous men of God hadn't also had. In other words, the second Adam doesn't have any advantage over the first Adam. To me, that makes his, his victory and his sinless life more marvelous, is Jesus has no benefits or helps that Adam didn't have when he failed. So Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature, and then that's partly how his temptation is different from ours. But neither did Adam, right? And so, so if you make the first Adam and the second Adam, which is how Paul can talk about Jesus, the first and the last Adam, um, then you can really see that almost point for point, they're using the same set of tools. They're using the same. In one sense, Adam has an unfallen, unsinful, perfect utopia to live in. Jesus has to live among jerks like us, which is a problem as well. So in some sense, he has disadvantages. And yet, the second Adam triumphs, the first Adam failed. So anything that's going to take away from that, well, of course, it was easy for him. Even Luke's emphasis on his need to pray. So Jesus knows what's coming, and he makes time to get away. He needs to do this if he's going to be faithful. It's not as though, well, what, he prayed or not, he wouldn't. No, he needed to pray. And he made the time to pray. And then Luke highlights the disciples' failure to pray is why they you know, they fall flat on their faces, and why Jesus perseveres. So to me, the the importance of that truth is brought up in Hebrews 4, where we're encouraged to not shrink back, for we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way as you are yet without sin. Therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace to find help and grace in time of need. So precisely when I need to come to the throne of grace. I need help. right? I'm struggling. My attitude's bad. I'm in sin. The truth that's supposed to urge me onto the throne is the belief that Jesus, in many ways, knows exactly what I'm going through. So the more dissimilar he is to me, the more you erode that important truth. So wherever Jesus can be seen without compromising his deity or compromising his righteousness. To be like me, I think passages like Hebrews 2 and even the presentation of the Gospels show that he is. And so I default to assuming his life was like mine, except at points where the text makes it clear it wasn't. You know what I mean? Um, That's a long way about answer, but the practical concern I have is, Hebrews 4 is emphatic because he can sympathize, because he can relate, because he's been through it experientially. He isn't going to cast me away and say, why on earth are you, you get out of here, you knucklehead. He sympathizes. So practically, that really matters to me. Um, And so anything that I can do to not erode that unnecessarily, I'm zealous to keep. Does that?
1: I agree. It helped a lot to compare it to Adam. That's yeah. the first. And yeah, if you the second, think first and last helps. Adam,
0: it lines up a lot better. Which, which also, I think, means Jesus' temptation is real because people say, well, you know, you need a sin nature to be tempted. Adam didn't. You can really be tempted and not have a sinful nature. Adam was. And we know he was because he sinned, right? So, so the first and last Adam parallel, I think, is very helpful, for me at least, in, in viewing. Well, because
1: sin doesn't come from a sin nature, it comes from uh, rejection of God, right?
0: But once we become sinners, our hearts are like a fountain just coming yeah. up with sinful ideas, you know? Yep. And Jesus doesn't have that. Yep. And I was, I was talking with uh, your son earlier about this. Temptation can be, in, you could look at temptation in two sorts. I have a son. I was pointing at Carolyn.
1: Oh, I, but you were looking and talking to me. I was confused. It's, multi, it's
0: multitasking, Simeon. I don't do that. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Multitasking. Sorry. Um, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. I let the cat out of the... Yeah. Sorry. Um, and... Julia, we need to talk. <laughs> there are two types... There, there's at least two ways of parsing out temptation. There are some things we, we, uh, we want that are not in and of themselves wrong. They're wrong because we want them in a way or at a time God has forbidden. So I was, I was talking to Jacob about even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's nothing fundamentally wrong about eating that fruit. It's wrong because God said, don't do it, right? Um, But it's not like a wicked fruit. In fact, God says, now he's become like us, knowing good and evil. So in one sense, he becomes more like God. That part of what the serpent said is true. It was wrong because God forbade it, right? So um, the the fiancé looking forward to his wedding night, um, is not wanting or looking to something fundamentally wicked. Doesn't mean that, but God says, hey, don't let your mind go there, you know, guard your thoughts. Now, somebody wants to have, um, you know, let me switch the analogy to get something a bit more PC, not PC, more G rated. Um, wanting to have multiple partners at the same time, there's no context where that's okay. You want something fundamentally wicked. If what you're looking for is, I want an experience that involves five people, no. It's never okay, right? So Jesus, in his temptation, never wants things that are overtly wicked. He never wants things that are fundamentally corrupt. But there are plenty of things that he could truly desire at the wrong time or in the wrong way. Jesus wants all worship, praise, and honor, yes? So when Satan says, hey, I'll give that to you. Just bow down and worship me. He actually has a real carrot. He actually has something that Jesus inwardly, I want that. Like, there's a strong, yeah. Jesus is really hungry. There's nothing wicked about wanting bread. But God has driven him out in the wilderness to be tempted to rely on him. And so the answer is, no, God said, so I'll give you bread when you need bread. So all the temptations we see. And Jesus could, we don't know if he did, but I'd assume just from the way the body produces hormones, Jesus could desire, it'd be nice to be married, and have the pleasures that come with that. He's not wanting anything fundamentally wicked, but he'd have to guard his thoughts and his minds from that. So this. In every sense, Jesus can be tempted as we are, yet without sin. Not because he knows what it's like for his own heart to well up wicked desires, but there's plenty of good things he could rightly desire. But that's not your mission, or you want them, or Satan's tempting you to get them in the wrong way. You can have this without the cross. I'm sure that was tempting. We saw the garden, him praying with blood, you know, as if blood, whether that's real or, or, or just a it looked like blood. We know he wanted to avoid the cross if he could. So when Satan says, hey, you can have all the kingdoms of the world and not go to the cross, just worship me. There's a real carrot out in front of him, right? So I truly think Jesus was really tempted, and it was difficult. I think that's why he was praying, as he was. Um, yet, not the exact same way that his heart's welling up desire for wicked things. But there's, anyway, does that make Okay. Other questions?
2: Oh! I want to go back to the part where he said something about, like, the boat. And, um, I was wondering, remember, Peter was starting to get really nervous because I was having a really bad storm, and Jesus was asleep, and... He said, oh, Peter, you have little faith.
0: Yes. Jesus is in the boat. There's a terrible storm such that fishermen are afraid, and he rebukes their faith. Um, and people have argued about why he rebukes their faith. I think the simplest reason is if you believe I'm the Messiah and I've come for a mission, then this boat isn't sinking because I haven't done what I've come to do yet. Um, We can talk more about that afterwards. I want to focus to um, what we were dealing with this morning, but I'll be happy to chat more about that. But that's the simple answer. I believe Jesus rebukes Peter, because Peter should know in the company of the Messiah, Messiah's mission is not getting sidetracked by a sinking boat. Um,
2: But you also mentioned he asked uh, um, not to do something. Jesus
0: asked that the cup by which he meant the cross, the suffering of the cross.
2: That's exactly what I was trying to get to. Okay,
0: okay, yes.
2: He not asked only once. He also asked three times when he went up that hill. And Peter and there was this other guy who... And stayed behind one of his closest friends.
0: Are you talking about when Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain, Jesus yeah. was glorified, and Moses and Elijah came, and they talked to him about the exodus that he was about to perform in Jerusalem? Luke 9, is that what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, and God said no three times.
0: Okay. I'm, I'll talk to you afterwards to make sure I understand what you're talking about. I know Paul asked... Lord three times to remove the thorn from his flesh and God said no. But they also
2: fell asleep three times.
0: Yeah. Yes. They fell asleep twice in Luke 22
2: and they wanted to... God said I mean, Jesus said, how can I trust you if you don't keep your promise?
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. We, We can talk more afterwards, Bennett. Other questions? Simeon?
1: Um With what we were talking about earlier, is yeah. it safe to say that Jesus might have struggled with like learning to study and to pray and to memorize and other things of that nature, Jesus, or did it just come easily to him? No,
0: he, the text says, and I quote, he learned obedience to okay. so the things that he suffered.
1: It took work. So
0: Jesus had to learn how to gird up the loins of his mind, focus, and study. And I would not assume that was easy for him. Um, He did it with perfect zeal, and he did it with perfect diligence, but just because he does it with perfect zeal and diligence doesn't make it easy. Um, Jesus learned, this is the language of Hebrews, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. He grew in wisdom and stature. And no, I would not assume it just came easy to him. Um, He... Perfectly studied, his mind was perfectly under control at all times. So, in one sense, if you're doing things heartily, it's easier than when you do things lazily. There's a sense in which that's true. But no, I, I, we should not assume that like, the first time Jesus tried to walk, he did it perfectly. And the first time Jesus tried to talk, he did it perfectly. I mean, that, that's when you start overemphasizing his deity. To the extent, the, I mean, that's where you get these Middle Ages pictures of the Virgin Mary and the babies talking to people. In her arms. Dead serious. You no, know, they've got pictures of that. Roman Catholic Church has got there's Jesus, he's got a halo on his head, he's holding up his fingers and he's talking. You know, it that's not the way the gospels present Jesus. Um, so yes, we, we, we want to be careful about either we <laughs> we can't make too much of his deity, we can't make it too much of his humanity. The danger is when in making much of the one you erode and undermine the other. That's, that's really the issue. Whatever exaltation we give to his deity, don't minimize his humanity and vice versa. Yes. I've got a. Oh, in the back. I was going to go someplace really controversial, but give me a minute.
2: We'll get there. A question. Yes. Uh, in the Bible, there's a lot of places where the secondborn is honored, like Jacob, um, and then Jesus is the sec, kind of the second Adam. Uh-huh. Um, this is kind of a tangent to that. Uh, king David is the shepherd king and a picture of Christ coming. Uh, could you say that Saul was kind of like the first Adam and David be like the second Adam? I,
0: I get really uncomfortable... Um, is that too much of a stretch? ...with typology. I mean, I, I get really uncomfortable with typology. Um, certainly I see similarities, Right. And even with like David's life, we see all sorts of similar events. So David's anointed king, but he isn't in fact ruling as king right. for years while the dethroned usurper is running around. Jesus is waiting for his enemies to made a footstool. That lines up perfectly with Psalm 110. But even that, I don't want to say is typology, T- typology, or um, I don't want to start allegorizing everything. Just because something looks like something doesn't mean it was set up to be like that. So there's a sense in which there's a similarity there. Yes. But whether or is, not that's an intentional, authorial intention similarity, or whether that's just we look at it and say, hey, these things are similar, I don't know.
2: Okay, well just, it just makes me wonder why God had Saul first, knowing that he would fall. And then,
0: well, I okay. think the reason, we were, I was actually just talking about this on, on Friday night with the hoppers. Um, picking Saul from the tribe of Benjamin should have been an out- identification that something was wrong. Jacob, we're going to look at this next week, but Jacob um, prophesying over his sons clearly declares, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until he who comes to whom tribute belongs. So when you, and the book of Deuteronomy says you can have a king, and when you have a king, you'll, he has to have his own handwritten copy of the law. But it wasn't their desire for a king that was wicked. It was their reason. We want a king like all the other nations. We want to be just like everybody else. And so God tells Samuel, they've not rejected you, but me as king. And then he picks them the king they deserve. So right out of the gate, they should be aware something's wrong because Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah. Maybe maybe it was an opportunity for them to go, whoa, whoa, we're sorry. We did this the wrong way. We're sorry. But I think the reason they get Saul is as a punishment. You want a king, huh? Okay, here's a king. He's really tall. He's handsome. He'll do great. You know, no, I think that's, it's kind of like the Romans 1, God giving us over to what we want, you know. It's like the parent who catches their kids smoking, you know, locking them in the closet, saying, you can't come out until you finish the pack. You know, see how you like it now, that type of mentality. Okay, sorry. I heard of... That's probably an urban legend, but I... Nope? nope. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> so... Okay. Um, so, okay. But that, that's, my, that's my off-the-cuff guess with Saul. There might be more to it. The only danger is, if you start trying to say it's authorial intent you can find similarities all over the place with everything. I mean, I, I got a book that has like 47 points of why Joseph is a f- type of Christ. Like, maybe, but without, without um, God telling us that, it, it simply, simply becomes wherever you can see a point of similarity. There was actually, there was actually a Babylon Bee article that amazingly brought something this sound. It was 10 obvious Christ figures in the, in the Star Wars um, series. And they were just being silly, but they said the Death Star is a type of Christ because it's destroyed and it comes back. And it's powerful and it wields supreme power. And they're just it was being silly. But the point is you can you can ultimately start seeing it everywhere and everything. The red cord coming down from Rahab's windows, the blood of Christ. I mean I've I've heard the sermons that they're all really powerful. So I want the authors to try to point me in those directions. Is there anything in reading the account of First Samuel, or later writers talking about First Samuel, that would make me think Saul and that type of stuff? And if there is, you might be onto something. I'm. I just am hesitant just because we see a similarity to say, ah, that must be what that's about. Um, that's a long-winded answer. I apologize. Other thoughts or questions? I got somebody upset. Cause like I thought the red cord was. Sorry. Um,
3: Yes all right here's what it means about the death of Joseph, so he did began he was one hundred and ten years old in the he Egypt in the coffin. He was in the scripture of Genesis, and it was about how he Reminded to tell all the Egypt people who I want to come. <clears throat> I think it, what it means in Egypt. And that's when he died. here was 110. Mm. And, and here's one thing. Now, the message is, we goes in Genesis to John, Job, and Jeremiah. they both were in Israel who, who are really to give um, praying for God because he's saying they were saying that you know, all the Egyptians would just want to kill Jesus.
0: Another thing interesting about Joseph, um, and again, I was talking to Hoppers about this on Friday. I've actually had a friend of mine make a strong argument for Joseph being unfaithful. And I'm, I don't buy it. But think about this. Joseph fully adopts the Egyptian culture. He doesn't keep the... the uh, from we can tell any distinctive traits, whether it's cutting his beard or the way he dresses. He marries the high priest of the sun god's daughter. He has a bowl of divination that he warns his brothers. I don't, you know, that I use this bowl for divination. In other words, you can make a strong case that Joseph, after being betrayed by his brothers, is sorely tempted, and maybe even for a time, begins to identify himself as an Egyptian. You're know, with those people. They cast me out. These people have taken me in. It's interesting that the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, when it points to the faith of Joseph, doesn't point to his, his faithful service of Potiphar or how he saved the people. It points to the fact that when Joseph was on his deathbed and old, he said, you make sure when you go up to the land that God promised you, bring my bones with you. Which means by the end of Joseph's life, he has decisively decided, I am, in fact, an Israelite. I am hoping in the inheritance of my father, Jacob, and his God. So you could, I, I think you could make a strong argument that Joseph, as a man of integrity and character throughout the whole story, his real battle is whose promises and reward do I want? Because Egypt's got some reward, man. <laughs> they got some great reward. And at the end of the day, Joseph decides, nope, I want the reward of the resurrection in the land. Um, anyway, sorry about Joseph. I want to go someplace interesting. I think you could argue Here's my controversial statement, which I will then... I got 10 minutes. Good. Okay. This is where I want to go further and deeper. This is, this is tricky. I'll preface this by... I was reading a book called The Resurrection of Moral Order by Oliver O'Donovan, and, he, and he, I got this one page, half a page. And I read it, and I was like, huh. That sounds like heresy, but I can't flaw it. Then I sent it to a professor at seminary. What do you think of this? If you say it exactly like that and know differently, it's okay. <laughs> this is one of those things. So here's the statement. Think about this. Jesus, at the incarnation, became a creature. You have to conclude that. Let me me back that up. He's not only a creature. He's still God. Jesus became human. Yes, it's not Jesus in a body. So I am a spirit, physical, composite creature. I'm duplex in nature. I'm a spirit, physical being, yes? So then Jesus' body created body, is Jesus. It's not the totality of Jesus, but it's not Jesus in a body. Jesus, as a man, is now spirit flesh. So Jesus' body is Jesus, yes? Jesus' body is created. So part, and this, go to Romans 8. Part of what makes this interesting is that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, first in prominence, as the creator, sustainer, and end goal for all things. But by virtue of the incarnation, by virtue of becoming Mary's firstborn, he actually enters in solidarity with the creation. And according to Romans 8, that solidarity entering into creation, and in O'Donovan's sentences, he, he stands in solidarity with the creation as creature. And I'm like, I don't like the way that sounds. And O'Donovan's careful to qualify it, but that is ultimately the basis for God promising and and the confidence we have that God will not only redeem our bodies, but as we read in Colossians, all things. He's going to redeem this created order, that that, that the fallen world around us will be redeemed. So look at at Romans 8. And we were here a week or two ago with all the groaning, creation's groaning. So look at this, okay? Verse 20... Oh, no, let's start in verse 18 of 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed in us. For the creation eagerly longs for the revealing of the sons of God. This fallen, broken, dying, sick, decaying world is eagerly longing for our resurrection. That's what we' talk about the revealing of the sons of God. Um, why is the creation awaiting? The resurrection of the sons of God, because when the Lord returns, when the second, when the resurrection occurs, this world will be redeemed as well. The creation itself, for the creation, waits with eager longing. Verse nineteen for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was not subjected to futility was for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom, the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pangs of childbirth until now, and only the creation that we ourselves. So there's this sense to which the creation, Jesus in, in stepping into the created order by becoming, in a sense, creature, he's more than creature, but he's a man, he has a body, and that body is part of the created order. Maybe that's another way of saying it. Jesus enters into and permanently becomes part of the created order in so much as Jesus has a body. That is proof that this created order can, Paul's saying, be redeemed. It's not just a spiritual resurrection. It's not just a spiritual salvation. But this world around you will be set right and redeemed. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead not only promises the hope of our resurrection from the dead, but it also promises the hope of the redemption of the entire created order, which, if you go back to Colossians 1, is, I believe, part of what Paul is getting at when he says... There it is. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself not all people, He has a broader view of Jesus' reconciliation simply than he redeems people. All things, whether on earth or in heaven. So I think Paul has in view there the fact that Christ's resurrection is going to ultimately result in the redemption of all things. Trees, mountains, clouds, fish, everything that's been subjected to futility. Now, that's much too nuanced to bring into a 20-minute message um, in Sunday morning, but I wanted to make that point. There is a sense in which, even though the title firstborn of creation refers to his preeminence, because of the incarnation, he actually does enter into the creation. And that then, through his being the firstborn from the dead, he's going to ultimately bring all of creation with him into the new life of the resurrection. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Yes, Corey. So prior to his birth as human, was had, there
2: a physical distinction of any kind between him and God? Because everything was created by him, yes. through him. Yes. So yes. what was his, it's hard to put in words, but, and maybe you can't, but there is a distinction yes.
0: from God yes. prior well, no, to him becoming yes. a man. Well, and John, and John 1, one makes that clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There is distinction. He's with someone else, God, and God, the word was, the word was God. He, and the word with in Greek is the word pros, to, towards, they're face-to-face, that's the concept, they're, they're towards each other in fellowship. Um, as best as we can tell, we're pretty, this is pretty tight certainty, um, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is pre-incarnate Christ, as best as, I mean, I'm mean, i 99% certain. The angel of the Lord, I don't have time to go there, but if you look in Grudem, which you've got, um, he'll he will do a section on that. The angel of the Lord receives worship and praise and honor. The angel of the Lord is called God. So when the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents and he goes up on the smoke of the altar, they say, we will surely die for we have seen God The angel of the Lord speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and talks like he's God. And so the angel of the Lord, we're pretty certain, the text doesn't explicitly say it, but it seems like a very, very, very safe conclusion that most Christian theologians have come to. And the angel of the Lord never shows up again after the incarnation. Um, So the angel of the Lord is almost certainly pre-incarnate Christ, not part of the created order because he's not taken on a body yet. So Jesus is pre-existent. He makes all things at the incarnation. He enters into the created order by becoming human. Um, but that's as best as we can tell. But let me, let me go one step further with this because we've got three minutes and we'll close here. That, the doctrine of the Trinity, I think I've said this before, the doctrine of the Trinity grounds um, philosophically and metaphysically, sorry, the doctrine of the Trinity gives us a real ground for the belief that God is love. There's a reason why the other big monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism, struggle with a loving God. They get Allah is just. They get that Allah is righteous. They get that he is judgment. But if God exists solely as one person, it becomes very difficult to see how love is an essential character quality of him because who is he loving before creation? Nobody. Nobody. If you're, if you're Islamic or if you're in Judaism, then it's really hard to see how core, fundamental identity is love in God when he's existed for eternity and the creator that always has been here for a blink in the eye. Whereas you go to some place like John 17, another place where you can see Christ before. Go, go to John 17. We'll close here. Um, Jesus' prayer in the garden refers to fellowship he had with the Father before the world began. It's one of the few places we get a glimpse into before creation. And there's glory, and there's fellowship, and there's person. So, so in a Christian understanding, and the New Testament's really making clear the doctrine of the Trinity, God has always been in a loving relationship with the members of the Godhead. So you can then say, It's fundamental, it's it's core of who God is, that he's loving, that he's communicative, that he's self-revealing, that he's he's interacting, right? So when God shows up in Genesis 1 and talks to somebody, he's not doing something fundamentally new or out of character. There's been a relationship and a fellowship in the Trinity for eternity. John 17, verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. There's a relationship. He's with the Father, sharing in glory, and he's longing for it. So I don't have a ton of ideas what Jesus was up to before the creation, but he is distinct from the Father. He's in fellowship with the Father, and he has glory with the Father. And we are at time, folks. Godspeed, God bless you, and I hope to see you back here this evening for the children's musical program.